But uh, today I am uh, just excited because we get to jump into part three of this series called Make It Real. It's a study of James. And uh, as we begin, I want to take you back to a childhood memory that I have, okay? So I was a kid. We were playing outside. It was the 80s, so that's really all there was to do. Imagine a world without the internet, and now you're in my childhood. I know many of you were there. Good times. Anyway, uh, behind my house, there was this open lot, this grassy lot, and for a bunch of kids, it was like the perfect football field. So picture a bunch of kids kind of lined up, standing there nervously. The two most athletic of us, Nick and Matt, are captains, and they're picking their teams. It's like, okay, we want Seth. Uh, Yeah, I'll take Nate, and uh, we want Joe. The line is disappearing. I'm still there. Pretty soon it's like, hey, that kid over there on crutches, the broken leg, we'll take him. Uh, We want Billy's golden retriever. Nobody's taking, anybody remember what this felt like? Okay, maybe you were one of the kids that got picked early. I never got picked first. I just wasn't that athletic of a kid. But uh, what's going on in that moment uh, in the open lot picking teams? Well, essentially, it's kids playing favorites. Kids picking the most athletic, kids picking their friends. It's kind of like kids picking their favorites. And, you know, picking favorites, uh, playing favorites, is just kind of part of life. And maybe you didn't experience it with with sports, but you probably experienced it somewhere else. Now, anybody remember the mad scramble around the homecoming dance? Like you got to find a date, you got to pick a favorite, I suppose you could call it. Uh, Maybe you've experienced it while applying for a job. It's essentially like all these people apply for a position and the employer, what do they do? They pick their favorite, that's kind of the deal. Uh, You may have experienced it with dating, I mean, dating is basically, you know, you meet these people, you start a relationship. The whole goal is to find the person that you're going to marry, which is finding your favorite person in the world, basically. So playing favorites, I mean, it's just just normal. It's part of life. It's good, except for when it's not. Because there are times when playing favorites kind of crosses a line into something that's harmful and destructive, And I I would imagine that you've experienced this as well. So when I was a kid, uh, we called them cliques. It was like social groups. You got like the cool kids and then the not cool kids. And if you're not part of the cool kids, you know it and you feel it. Some of you grew up in a family where there was a favorite kid. It wasn't you. You still remember what that felt like, feels like. A couple words discrimination, prejudice, sexism, racism. Yeah, there are times when playing favorites crosses over into something that's harmful and destructive in relationships, in families, and even societies. And what we're going to discover today is that playing favorites was a problem in the early church, and it was the destructive kind. So James, he he paints a picture for us. Uh, And so let me take you into uh, James chapter 2. Here's the picture that James paints. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. 
So he paints this picture. Two individuals walk into the meeting. I, I would guess he's talking about a church meeting. One of these individuals is, is wealthy, it's fancy. Now, keep in mind, ancient world, I mean, most people had one, maybe two outfits. And so to have fancy clothes, that's, that's a big deal. And a gold ring. I mean, nobody in the ancient world had fancy jewelry unless you were really wealthy. So one person walks in who's very wealthy, upper echelon in society. And then you got this other person who's, who's poor. Says, filthy clothes. This person's dirty. I just imagine they look terrible smell terrible. I mean, this is the kind of person you want to avoid, walk around, be away from. So this is the picture that James is painting, but he goes on. He says, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, uh, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. And he says, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. What he's talking about here is playing favorites. If you go to the wealthy guy, hey, here's the best seat now, sit, sit here by me. But the poor guy, the dirty guy, like, yeah, why don't you, um, yeah, way over there, actually, maybe outside. We're talking about playing favorites. Now, why would they have done this in the church? What's going on? Okay, there's something particular about the Roman society that the early church grew up in. It was all about status and all about something called patronage. See, it was all about where you ranked in society. And the idea in Roman culture is you want to rise. You want to, your status to increase. And the fastest way that you could do that was to attach yourself to somebody who had influence and power and wealth. And that person would become kind of what's called your patron and they would help you rise in society. And so this was a huge deal in Roman culture. And so that's why you would say to somebody that's wealthy and powerful, hey, sit here right by me. Yeah, what do you do for a living? Because you could get in their orbit and they could help you rise in society. And the poor guy, it's like, what does he have to offer? Nothing. He probably wants something from me. Yeah, go, go, go sit over, go sit outside, actually. Now, we look at this scenario that James is painting, and it's like, okay, that's, that's ugly. It's terrible. It's awful. I mean, it's called prejudice. It's called discrimination. And here's the thing. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. There's a party on Friday night. Somebody at school asks you, hey, are you going to the party? Your first question, well, who's going to be there? Because it matters. We do this sort of thing all the time. Happens in the office. There are certain people in the office, you, you want them to notice your work because they have influence. And then there's other people in the office that if you care about your career, well, you're going to stay away from them. You're not going to be on a project with them if you care about your career. We feel this when we choose a neighborhood to live in. We feel this when we choose the school that we're going to send our kids to. You see, it, it, it maybe happens subconsciously or consciously, but we all play favorites. We don't want to, but there's just something in us that's broken, that gravitates in that direction. And James, you know, 
He's, James, he's straightforward. I've said it before. James is like a, a spiritual gut punch. And it's kind of like, yeah, sure, this is normal. And it was normal in the early church, but James is not having it. He has challenging words for his congregation. And he has challenging words for us because favoritism, it, it goes against the way of Jesus. And it goes against the kind of community that uh, Jesus wants to create in our church. Now, here's something that I know is true about you. You don't want to be a person of prejudice. Neither do I. None of us want to be people that discriminate in any sort of way, but there's just something in us that's broken that moves in that direction. But here's the good news. James has incredible truth for us today powerful truth that can lead us out of favoritism and discrimination, racism, I mean all of it. And what James wants to do is, is kind of offer a solution, an, an antidote to these things, and it's all in the person and the gospel of Jesus. And so James is going to point to Jesus in four different ways that kind of help us move away from uh, any kind of discrimination and favoritism. So the first way that James wants to point to Jesus is this word right here, glory. He wants to talk about glory. So let's jump in. We're in chapter two of James today. Hey, congratulations to us. We made it to the second chapter. This is a big deal. Here's how he begins this conversation about favoritism. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Key word here, I think, is the word glory. James connects the idea of glory with favoritism, and specifically, the glory of Jesus has something important to say about favoritism. Now, glory. Glory is a churchy word. I'm guessing you don't use this word outside of church very often at all. But here in church, I mean, glory, hallelujah. It's in all of our worship songs. You know, glory to God, glory in the highs. I mean, almost every song that we sing has the word glory in it. And all this singing about glory and talking about glory, do you ever just kind of go like, what are we actually saying? <laughs> like, what does this word actually mean? And so this word glory is important as we talk about favoritism. So let's just take a moment and kind of define what, what does glory even mean? So the most basic definition of the word glory, particularly in the Old Testament, which the Old Testament was in Hebrew, uh, the most basic definition for glory is simply this, heavy. No, seriously, <laughs> it means heavy, like weighty. And it's funny because we have an expression that kind of captures this idea. Because if you're hanging out with a friend and they start telling you about some things in their life that are going wrong, that are really difficult, that are really hard, we have a phrase and we go like this, wow, man, that's really heavy. And that's kind of the idea here, although that's kind of a negative example. So if you think about it more like a positive way, it's, it's heavy, it's weighty, maybe the best word is significant. We're talking about real significance and value. And so... When we talk about the glory of Jesus, we're talking about how Jesus has weight and how he's significant and he has incredible value, the majesty, the brilliance of Jesus. That's, that's what we mean when we talk about the glory of Jesus. 
And now you're going like, cool, that's great. We got this definition. What does that have to do with favoritism? Okay, here we go. God is not the only one that has glory. Actually, people have glory too. If you think about it, it makes sense. God made people in his image. We reflect him. Therefore, we have a little bit of glory. You might call it like a relative glory. And you know, this makes sense too, because uh, people, I mean, people, human beings do some pretty amazing stuff. Uh, if you've ever seen like a, a masterpiece of art like this, for example, um, it's just like, wow, like I can't believe people can produce that. People do some pretty amazing things. Human beings uh, create cities. I mean, that's incredible. Uh, human beings, I mean, we learned how to fly. I mean, that's pretty impressive. And, and probably our greatest accomplishment of all is uh, the cheeseburger. I'm just saying, I, I'm kind of a foodie. And you know, cheeseburgers do have just a little bit of glory. I'm just saying. But no, my point is people do amazing things. People have what you might think of as a relative glory. But in comparison with Jesus, kind of like, you know, a light bulb to the blazing sun. And if you're confused, you're the light bulb. So we have this relative glory. And now here's what happens with favoritism. When we're showing favoritism, we're focused on the wrong glory. We're, we're focused in on people glory. And, and I start to think about my own glory, especially about how you perceive my glory. And then I start thinking about, well, that person over there has uh, some glory. That person over there doesn't have much glory at all. So I want to be with that person because their glory can kind of uh, rub off on my glory and kind of maybe raise my glory a little bit more in your eyes. This is what we do. And this is exactly what was going on with James' example. You got the rich guy. Hey, sit here right next to me. This guy's got glory. He's rich. He's powerful. I want to be near him because it's going to elevate my glory. The poor guy, he's got no glory. Get out. Go sit way over there, okay? Yeah, maybe outside. Do you see what I mean? We focus in on the wrong glory. We're focused in on people glory, and it becomes this comparison game their glory compared to their glory compared to my glory. And James just draws us to the glory of Jesus. And it's like he's saying, look, if you want to move away from favoritism in comparison, discrimination of any kind, get your eyes off of people glory and focus your heart on the glory of Jesus. I mean, just take the time to think about his character and who he is. Think about how powerful Jesus is. He's the one that created everything and holds it together. Think about his perfection, his holiness. I mean, think about his creativity, his faithfulness. Think about his sacrifice, his resurrection. Just dwell on the fact that he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven and at his command is legions of angels. Think about the brilliance, the majesty, the glory of Jesus. And when you set your attention there, 
instead of people glory, what happens is all this comparison and desire, how do I measure up to them and what about my glory? It all just begins to diminish and be revealed for what it really is, which is ridiculous and trite and small compared to the glory of Jesus. And so if you wanna move away from favoritism and discrimination, just focus your eyes on the person and glory of Jesus. Now, something else here. I just wonder, are you, are you tired of this whole comparison thing? I mean, this the emotional roller coaster of comparing yourself to other people. Scrolling through social media and just comparing your life to their highlight reel. I mean, are you just, are you tired of that emotional roller coaster? Focus on the glory of Jesus and stop paying so much attention to people glory. So just a challenging question for us is just whose glory? Whose glory are you focused on? And I, I just believe that if we're honest, most of us are almost exclusively focused on people glory. And it is having disastrous consequences in our lives, particularly in our mental and emotional health. This is why worship is so important. I mean, if you're wondering, this whole deal where we sing like three or four songs before the sermon, it's not like a warm-up. It's significant. It matters because what we're doing is focusing on Jesus, focusing on his character. It like reorients and recalibrates our hearts. Listen, God doesn't need us to sing. We're the ones who need it. It's so good for us to refocus on the glory of Jesus. Something else. It's just, I think we need a little more time in the scriptures and a lot less time with social media. A little more engagement with the scriptures and a lot less engagement with social media because we're just focused on the wrong glory. So James, he kind of lays the foundation for this conversation about favoritism and discrimination. And it's about the glory of Jesus. But, that, but he's just getting started because now he wants to turn our attention to the heart of Jesus. So let's jump back into James uh, chapter 2, verse 5. James says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. Now, uh, here last week, we talked about how God, uh, his heart is for the vulnerable. And now today we see, again, God's heart is for the poor. In this phrase, God has chosen the poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith. What exactly does this mean? Well, something that's just true is that most of the early Jesus followers, the first century Christians, they were poor. I mean, they, they just were. We, we know this from writings of Romans, uh, pagan Romans who just talked really negatively about poor Christians. For example, we got this uh, guy right here, Celsus. Here's something that he said. He called Christians workers in wool and leather and washerwomen. I think that's hilarious, washerwomen. And I'm like, what do you know? You don't even have a nose, dude. It's rude. But this is how Romans talked about Christians because, I mean, statistically, just most of the Christians were poor. You know what? This is, this is interesting. Even today, most Christians in the world, 
are poor. Most of the Christians are in South America, Africa, and Asia. Most Christians are poor. God has chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. So what's up with this? I mean, we're not allowed to play favorites, but God is. It's like, I love poor people and I hate rich people. I mean, that would be bad for us as Americans. Is that what's going on here? I don't think so. I mean, for one thing, wealthy Christians are celebrated many times in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus, in the Gospels, there's this uh, group of wealthy women who follow him and help support his ministry financially, and they're celebrated. In the book of Acts, there's a woman named Lydia. She's a successful businesswoman. She deals in purple cloth, which I think is fantastic. And she connects with Paul. She, she begins to follow Jesus, and she financially supports Paul's ministry. So wealthy people are celebrated in the gospel. So it's not that God loves poor people, hates rich people. What is it then? I think it's about the heart. I think there's something here in poor people, reflective often in poor people, that a heart thing that God is after. And, and here's what I think it looks like. When you are poor and you look at your circumstances, you know that you have need. You recognize that you need help. I mean, when you're sitting at the kitchen table and you're filling out government aid paperwork, it's like, I know I need help. When you have to reach out to your parents, look, we need a loan, we'll pay you back, but can you help us out? You know that you have need. When you are poor, you look at your circumstances and you go, yeah, I need help. However, when you're wealthy, you tend to look at your circumstances and go, I'm good. I'm self-sufficient, I don't need help. Sometimes we even go look at our circumstances and kind of go, hey, look what I did. And I think what James is getting at here is this posture of humility, recognition of need. And really what he's after is, listen, don't look to your circumstances to tell you who you are. Instead, look to the gospel of Jesus and let that tell you who you are and then interpret your circumstances. Which is why in, in chapter one, James writes these words. He says in verse 9, <clears throat> believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. So when you are low, think of yourself as high. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. When you are rich, think of yourself low. And here's the idea. Again, don't look to your circumstances. Invite the gospel of Jesus to define you. He says to poor people, listen, don't forget who you are in Christ. Even though you are poor, don't forget that the God of the universe loves you. The one who holds it all together, he gave his life for you. And when you trust in Christ, you, you are adopted into the family of God. You become a child of the king, and now you stand to inherit all that is his. Just understand how incredibly high your position is. Let that define you, not your circumstances. And then to the rich person, it's like he's saying, never forget that you are a sinner in need of grace. Never forget that you brought nothing to the table 
It was all God's grace. God didn't save you because you're good. God saved you because he is good. And so he's leveling the playing field here. Don't let your circumstances tell you who you are. Invite the gospel of Jesus to tell you who you are and then interpret your circumstances. Now, why is this important for favoritism? Well, first off, it just sets us free. Because when you anchor your sense of identity to who you are in Christ, you just go, look, I'm deeply flawed and I'm desperately loved. And it's the same for everybody else. Every single person in your life, deeply flawed, desperately loved. We are all the same, regardless of what we have. And it just sets you free. You know what? If, if I am the child of the king, I don't need your approval. I don't need to compare myself to you to kind of figure out where I'm at. I, I, I cannot get a higher status than I already have. It just, it, it invites us into a deeper and richer way of living where we, we're not just using people, but instead loving people. And this now brings us to the third way that James wants to point to Jesus. He wants to talk about the law of Jesus, which has a lot to do with love. So again, back to James' letter to the early church. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. If you can keep the royal law, which is love your neighbor as yourself, what is the royal law? It's a way of saying the most important law, the most central law. And what is it to love your neighbor as yourself? This, this probably sounds familiar for those of us who grew up in church because James is referencing a teaching of his half-brother, Jesus. And so let me show you uh, from Matthew's gospel how Jesus talks about this. And what's happening here is uh, some of the Pharisees, uh, religious leaders, are trying to trap Jesus. So they ask him a question that's meant to really put him on the spot and make him look dumb. They ask him about, you know, what's the greatest commandment? It was a, a controversial subject at that time. So here's Jesus' reply. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And, so now he's adding, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So the first thing here is the greatest commandment and the royal law is the same thing. James and Jesus are talking about the same thing. And Jesus says they are love God, love people. And all the prophets and all the law, in other words, all of the scriptures can be boiled down to these two commands. Love God, love people. It's the royal law, it's the greatest commandment. And Jesus is kind of going, look, if you do these two things, you've nailed all of it. But if you break one of these two things, then you've missed all of it, which is exactly where James goes back in his letter. So jumping back to James now, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. You miss this, you miss the whole thing. Now the idea is 
favoritism violates this royal law, the greatest commandment. Why? Because it violates love your neighbor. Because favoritism is essentially love yourself, use your neighbor. Love yourself, use your neighbor for your own benefit. That's what favoritism is. Me loving me and using you. James' example again. Rich guy comes in. Hey, sit here right next to me. Best seat in the house. Why? I'm not loving him. I'm using him. I could benefit from him. And the poor guy, it's like, yeah, uh, you offer me nothing. Get out of here. Again, no love. It using him for my own benefit. Favoritism is me loving me and using you. Now, here's what's scary and here's the problem. We do this all the time. I mean, like every day, every one of us, we break this central commandment. I mean, there's people that you avoid at school because you don't want to be seen with them because of how they'll affect your reputation. And this is not just for teenagers. There are people you avoid in your neighborhood because you don't want to be seen with them because of how they affect your reputation. There's a reason that you're trying to get in good with your boss because your boss is the pathway to promotion. We all do this in big ways, in little ways all the time, which means we all break the very core of God's law which is significant and scary. So what do we do about this? Okay, final way that James wants to point to Jesus has to do with the word mercy. As, G as James, excuse me, closes this kind of section of his letter on favoritism, he wants to talk about judgment and he wants to talk about mercy. And I'll just kind of warn you, if it's a little confusing, so we'll take some time to unpack it. Here we go. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So he talks about the law that gives freedom. The law that gives freedom, I believe, is what we've been talking about, the teaching of Jesus, the royal law, the greatest commandment. The idea is live your life in such a way that as if you are accountable to that law. That's how you want to live. And then he gets into this business about mercy and judgment, and, and judgment will be shown without mercy if you haven't been merciful. What is this about? Okay, back to James' example. You got two people. You got one person who looks great, fancy clothes, nice jewelry, it's got it all together, rich person. And then you got this poor person. Dirty, filthy, looks terrible, smells terrible. Question, which one are you? I mean, if, if we're standing in the presence of God, the glorious one, the holy one, the righteous judge of everything, which one are you? I'm the filthy guy because I have not lived up to God's standard. I know that I'm a sinner. I've made a mess of things in my life. I have contributed to rebellion against God. I am the filthy one, and that's every single one of us. We all deserve punishment and death because 
of our rejection of God's love and his authority. But God has shown us mercy. Instead of punishment, he has given us his son. His son took on that punishment for us. I mean, I don't don't think I could say it better than the Apostle Paul and what he wrote to the Ephesians when he said, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It's like, do you understand the incredible mercy of God, the mercy that he gave us, what we did not deserve when we deserved punishment? That's what God extended to us, even though we're the filthy ones. In Christ, through the cross, he's made you clean, pure, forgiven. I mean, now you stand before God in like Pure clothes, beautiful clothes because of Christ. It's called mercy. And my point is when you experience the mercy of God, it changes everything when it comes to favoritism, discrimination, selfishness, racism, all of it. This experience of I don't deserve it, but this is what God has given to me now empowers us to extend the same kind of mercy to people in our lives who often, let's be honest, don't deserve it. See, there's a phrase that we use around here. Now, this is a manionism, okay? So I'm stealing it from Pastor Jeff, and uh, here it is. You probably recognize this. Mercy in, mercy out. I just think this is such a great way to capture this idea. God's mercy in and then our mercy out. Because we have experienced the mercy of God, it empowers us. I think this is the key to the whole thing. Is just remembering who I am and what God has done. That is what empowers me. When the gospel of Jesus begins to sink down deep into my soul, that's what empowers me to live this out, to live without favoritism, discrimination, and all of it. Mercy in, mercy out. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, Picture here, just kind of capturing this whole thing about picking teams and I just remember what that felt like to be one of the last picked on a regular basis. And I don't know if that's why I struggled so much in high school and young adulthood with comparing myself to other people, to being very insecure in my sense of value compared to other people, but I really did struggle with it. I mean, one of my best friends, he had a nickname for me because he saw right through everything. He called me Captain Popularity. Because I was that guy, like we had plans on Friday night, but somebody cooler invited me to do something, I would ditch them and go hang out with them. I struggled with value comparison and playing favorites for a long time. And so what changed? I really believe is the gospel of Jesus and that experience of mercy and the gospel of Jesus beginning to just live in my heart and empower a different way of operating, and that's my hope for you, that you would just rest in that mercy, mercy in, mercy out, because there's a much better and deeper and richer way to live. So I want to close our time in worship. So I want to invite our worship leaders back out uh, for a final song. 
And I hope that this is like kind of a first step in a different kind of week. A week where we're just a little more focused on the glory of Jesus, where we take a little more time to reflect on the mercy that he has given us. And so let's take some time to just sing out to God, remembering what he's done for us and how that empowers us to live in a different way. So let me, let me pray for us and then uh, we'll sing together. Heavenly Father, we just uh, pause for a moment and think about uh, your character, your glory. God, you are so far beyond anyone or anything. You are in a class all to yourself. And God, we just recognize this and declare this. And God, you have shown us your mercy when you didn't have to. And you invite us now to live in a different way, the way that you have modeled, the way of sacrificial love and mercy to others. God, would you just empower us to live this out this week in our families and in our neighborhoods and our schools and workplaces? God, we love you. We're so grateful for who you are and what you have done. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.